God wants you to be at peace, maybe with a little less volume. God wants you to be at rest. He wants, to be, he wants you to be in perfect peace. But if we look at our lives, many of us will say that flees from us. It runs away from us. We don't have peace. But God really does want you to be in peace. And of course, the, way, the ways that that kind of is thwarted are different things that come at us to steal our peace away, to take that peace from us. We might have circumstances at work that come against you. And you say, how could I have peace when I have this kind of a work situation? Well, there's a minister that I know, and I know this kind of a situation is just as the work circles that I travel in. He was being assessed to be a church planter. And in our denomination, there's this center. They call it the Church Church Planning Assessment Center down down in Atlanta. And you go down to the center, these couples come, these men and their wives, and they're thrust into these high stressful situations, and then they're evaluated for whether they can really be a church planter. So it's, it's a stressful situation, because you think about it, there's a guy, and he's being evaluated for his career, his whole career. Uh, so in this week-long period, very stressful situation. And I can tell you, because I'm familiar with the, this man's story, that he was at peace in that. Or maybe you have uh, trouble where you're being uh, threatened physically, maybe with a health issue, or uh, in some way you or your family is being threatened physically. And you say, how can you have a peace in in a situation like that? Well, I can tell you about just yesterday, a guy's name was Werner Gronfeld, Gronwald, who was being inducted into the Martyrdom Hall of Fame monument in Oklahoma that they have, a beautiful monument that they did. And he was being inducted because of his story uh, after 9-11, he was called to Afghanistan and he went with his family in order to share the good news of Jesus Christ with people in Afghanistan. And, And it was very threatening for him and his family. And yet I can tell you, he came to a place of great peace in the midst of that situation. Or maybe you don't even know why you don't have this peace. Maybe you're like this young man who lived in Brockton, Massachusetts, who didn't, he just didn't, he just did not even know why he didn't have peace. He just didn't have peace. He didn't believe in God and yet he had this, and things were good in his life. He had this existential crisis. It was just, he, he, couldn't, he couldn't find peace. And yet this man also came to a place of peace. You say, how can you have peace in those kinds of situations? Well, you can, and I'm going to tell you today how you can, how you can come to a place of real peace, of lasting peace. It's not something that you can you know, psych yourself into. It's not something that you can say, I'm just going to will myself to have peace. It's not something that you can meditate your way into. Instead, what the Bible tells us we need for peace is something called faith. And I'm going to talk about how these people that I've just mentioned, through faith, came to a place of peace, how they came to that place in their lives. And we're going to do it by looking at this 
now climax of the most spectacular series of miracles in the history of the world. I've kind of mentioned this to you, that what we're reading about and what the Israelites experienced from being brought out of Egypt and now at the climax when they are at this sea and the sea parts and they go through, what we have here are are powers, uh, the shows of, of God's power that just the world had never seen before and actually really never has seen since then in terms of the number of people who had a direct experience right in front of them, number of people affected of the show of the power of God. And yet in the midst of this power, in the midst of this show of power, we see something that's needed what I've done here is I've, see if I can um, bring it up here, is uh, I've done a map here to kind of help us come into the story. You know, the Israelites were in Egypt, and if you look at uh, the map here, you'll see their route is traced in these red dots. I did. And what's going on there is they're leaving Egypt and being brought out of Egypt. And uh, in Exodus 13, Exodus 15, your English Bibles, it says they were brought to the edge of the Red Sea. Now, I can say today that all scholars agree that that's a bad translation, that through these historical peculiarities, we have this English translation that says they went to the Red Sea, and that body of water that we um, think of as the Red Sea down today in the the bottom here of, uh, of the map. I think everybody, I can say everybody agrees that that's not a good translation, Red Sea. That's where the agreement stops. When the, uh, scholars try to figure out where it was that the Israelites went to, that's where there's disagreement. And uh, the Hebrew term is Yam Suf. So you try to figure out how, what's, where is Yam Suf? Where should it be located on this map? And what's popular today, many people believe that, you know, this yam is the Hebrew word for sea. Suf is the problem. What is suf? And uh, as I said, many people are, um, believe today that it's an Egyptian loan word. It's very much like the Egyptian word for reeds. So instead of red sea, it's reeds sea. And they say, well, that fits because here north of uh, the Gulf of Suez, there's this area of very shallow water, two or three feet of water, and it has all these reeds around it. It's a, it's a vast place where there are many reeds. And you're like, oh, that makes sense. He brought them to this place, and they crossed over the Sea of Reeds. And actually, you know, that seems to fit in different ways. And so that's a very popular view among scholars today. Problem is, it doesn't really fit with our story or, or the account that we're given. There are a number of problems with it. Um, one time there was a graduate student who was studying this uh, account in a graduate program and he was just taken by this story and the spectacular power shown here and he said, praise the Lord. He just said out loud, praise the Lord that God parted the sea for the Israelites to go through. And the professor said, I don't know what you're so excited about. It was just two feet of water and a strong wind. And the graduate student said, praise the Lord that God drowned the Egyptians in two feet of water. 
So, you know, if you're going to believe our account, there was a wall of water on either side of them that they went through. But even more technically, this term, yam suf, it's, it's used a number of times. The word suf is used about 116 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. And it's only about four of them, I would say, that you could definitely say it refers to some organic material, like reeds. Actually, the majority of the time, 87 times, this, this suf word means something like end or extremity or even perishing or fulfillment. So it, it might be best translated the, the, sea, the extreme sea or, or the, the end sea, you know? And if you put things, different things together, and I, I, we don't have time to go into all of them, but if you want to talk more about it, we can talk about it in the bistro afterwards at, uh, on the sofas. But if you put it all together, God led them through this great wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula all the way down to the best place um, that, that we might say that they cross, and that was through the Gulf of Aqaba. Because this, uh, I, I could just mention one of the other things. The Yam Suf is used in First Kings, the book of First Kings 9, I believe. And uh, there are markers put by it. It said it's, you know, Yam Suf, which is by Elioth in Edom. And Edom, you see, is this area over here. And Elioth is right there on the north, where I put a dot, of the Gulf of Aquila. So it kind of locates it for us at least according to 1 Kings, right in that area. So this is where God led them through this wilderness down to the Gulf of Aquaba to cross this sea. And in doing that, God led them into a very difficult situation, a very trying situation, a situation with no peace at all. Let's stand and read uh, about it in Exodus chapter 14, as you can. I'll be reading the NIV version. It's in your bulletin if you want to follow along there. Again, Exodus chapter 14. And I will start a couple of verses earlier in chapter 13. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pihiroth, between Migdal and the sea. They, tore, they are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around in the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord." So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. 
So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they encamped by the sea near Pi-Hahiroth, opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done by bringing it to us, by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring. To you today, the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other side. So neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove a sea back with a strong east wind, and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down, from the pillar of the fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water to their right and to their left. 
That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please make yourself comfortable. What is the issue of this passage? Well, it's certainly a show of God's power. As I said, one of the most spectacular displays of power the world had ever known. But the issue, really, of the passage throughout, I can tell you, is an issue is faith. It's about faith from the beginning to the end. If we looked back in Exodus chapter 13, we would, we would see that the Israelites went out from Egypt, and it says they were armed for war. They were armed for war. You even see it in our passage where it says they went out boldly. They were ready for war. They were ready for a fight. And they had to go out ready for war because they were going into Canaan where they would face enemies to take the land. God sees this about it. It's very interesting. He says, we are not going to go up the way that we should go up. You know, there's a very easy way into the promised land. It's right along the coasts. It's very nice. It's a nice flat road. And I have it here in, our, in yellow on our, on our little map. All you have to do is go up from Goshen, go up along the Mediterranean Sea, and boom, you're in Gaza. You're in the promised land. Uh, and that would be the way to go. And God says, no, we're not going to go that way because as soon as the Israelites encounter war, they're going to turn around and run back with their tails between their legs because they're not trusting me. So God could have gone this way. It's a nice place. You know, that's why the Philistines always camped out there on the, on the coast because it's such a great place to be. They could have gone up that way. God says, no, we're not going to go that way because there's something missing in the Israelites. They're not really trusting him. And so he says, we're going to go across this, on this red dotted line into the wilderness. He takes them through a very hard way into the wilderness around. That's the beginning of the passage, the beginning of the story. If you get to the end of the passage, you look at verse 31, what's the end game? What happens at the end? Verse 31, they feared the Lord and they trusted in the Lord. They believed the Lord. So you see, at the end of the passage, the whole place they were going to, the whole direction that they were moving to is that direction of faith. So it's about faith. And in the middle, they go through an ordeal. And it really was an ordeal. Um, what I have here for you is a picture of this place along the Gulf of Aquaba. It's called Nueva today. And what you can see here is a plain, and behind the plain are these mountains. And all along the Gulf of Aqaba, what you have actually are mountains. You've got mountains and a sea. But there's this place here, which is the likely place of crossing, where there's this plain in front of the mountains. And there really is no way out once you come in here. There's a, there's a pass through the mountains, and then you have mountains, 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 and the sea. So it was really 
a dumb thing to do to come here if you were being pursued by an enemy. You know, it's kind of funny. It says, God says, oh, Pharaoh's going to look and think they're being dumb because, you know, they're wandering around the desert. They go where they can't get out. Well, they were being dumb. <laughs> there, it, there doesn't need to be any kind of deception here. It was just strategically a stupid thing to do to come to this, this plane. And yet, God brought them there. We saw that in the passage, right? It's very clear. He leads them, and Moses leads them into this place, into this place from which there is no escape. Now, this is the chosen people. You know, you got to wonder, God loves his people. Why would he bring them into an impossible situation like this? So that they were terrified when they faced it. And the answer is, folks, he was putting them into a situation where they needed to trust. They needed to trust him. Yes, this is a show of God's power, but God's power requires faith. You experience God's power. It requires faith. He still does this. He hasn't changed. Some of you wonder why you're, you're facing some of the things you are in your life right now. Because he hasn't changed in this. I feel that way. I feel that way often, actually. Why am I being put into a game where there, I, there doesn't seem to be a way to win? Why am I put in a situation that seems there's, there are these problems and there's no way to address these problems? I don't see any way out. You know, and I, it shouldn't be like that for my life, especially at my age, right? I shouldn't be facing situations where I don't know how to, how to handle them. You know, at my stage in life, at least, you think, I get to a place where I see a problem, problem comes at me, I, have to, I know how to address it. I have the skill set. I have the skills to be able to do it. I'm not getting that. My life should be like a, you know, a B-movie, where, you know, the hero, he knows what to do. He sees the problem, he knows what to do. It should be like, a, you know, I get the phone call of the problem, or the problem calls up, and I'm able to say, problem, I don't know what you are, and I don't know what you want. I can tell you that I don't have money, but what I do have is a very particular set of skills Skills I've acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for problems like you. And if you don't return my daughter, I will hunt you down. I will find you. And I'll kill you. Thank you. Thank you very much. That should be my life, right? I have the skill set. I'm in control. But that's not what I'm led. That's not what I find myself in. I mean, why do this? Chosen people. Yeah, right. God keeps placing me in this situation, and maybe you as well. 
her particular purpose. He has arranged this. This is what you first need to realize. You're in this situation like me. He has arranged this for us. He's not taking us up the shoreline to Gaza. He's taking us through the wilderness to Yamsuf, the extreme sea. So it's really about faith. This is about building faith. This is about the life of faith. This is about how to walk in faith. So for the time that we have today, I just want to pull out some lessons of faith from this passage for us. Two lessons of faith. If you want to come to a place of peace, if you're in God's program here, two ways of walking in faith, two things that faith, the life of faith asks of us. And let's look at the first one in verse 14. Where Moses says, stop. Moses says to them, you have only to be still. Now remember what we just said, that Israelites left Egypt armed for war. They were ready. They were ready to battle. They thought they were ready. And Moses says to them here, stop. And if you can imagine this, they're armed for war. They think that they're ready. They go out boldly. And Moses says, stop. You are not to solve this problem. You need to only be still. Imagine, though, here they are armed for war. If they said instead, this is the time for us to go forth and solve this problem to fight. Here we are ready This is what, you know, we are God's people. We're God's army. Let's go. Come on, everybody. Let's go. Come on. You know, imagine if it was like that. Would have been a very different night. Would have been a disaster. And here's the walk of faith. You have to realize there are times, friends, when you are not responsible to be solving your problems. You are not responsible to make your life work out. Instead, God says, be still. Your job is to relax. (laughs) Yeah, relax in faith. You know, there was this group called uh, the Beastie Boys. Some of you remember the Beastie Boys. Okay. I thought I might have been the only one. Beastie Boys were famous because they had this one song, and it really propelled them to stardom. Um, and this song came out along with this video, and this was the song, You Gotta Fight for Your Right to Party. You remember that? You gotta fight for your right to party. And, you know, they're basically saying you gotta tell the authorities in your life, you know, your teachers and your parents, that they have to give you time to party, you know. (laughs) It's really a ridiculous song. <laughs> but I kind of liked it. I, I, I liked it in principle. Okay, all you young I liked it in principle. Because I saw this analogy to the life of faith. That is, you have got to be aggressive about being lazy in faith. You've got to have this attitude. I, th- my life is not my responsi- responsibility to work it out. And that's the attitude that you have to have. So you have to fight for your right to enter that place of relaxation in faith. You've got to be like Mary. 
who fought her sister Martha to sit at the feet of Jesus. Got into a fight with her sister about it. You have to be like the author of Hebrews. It says you've got to strive to enter that rest. Or you've got to be like these Israelites, armed for war, but ready to say, be still. We're not going to fight for this. Time to stop trying to solve the problems of your life. I mean, there are ways for us to be responsible and ways for us to not be responsible. The problem is we get them flipped around. (laughs) We take responsibility for the things that we don't have responsibility for. We don't do the things that we do. You know what your responsibility is in that problem situation? It's to rest in God, to, to relax in faith, and to do right, to follow his prescriptive will as, he's, as he shows us in the scriptures. Just to do right, that's all. And it's his responsibility to make your life work out. We usually flip those around. No, 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 no. I'm going to make sure that my life has to work out. You know, this... Minister friend I was telling you about, this guy who was in this church planning assessment center, a very stressful situation. The way that they determined who, who can really be the church planner is they put people in a situation, they say, who's going to lead? And they look very closely in these two-way mirrors. And who, who, is it, who is it that can lead in this situation? So this guy is in this situation, and he says to his wife, you know, we just need to be at peace here. It's up to God to work out this situation. He was doing exactly this what Moses told the children of Israel Israel to do, to be still. Well, so they put in this situation and say, okay, we're going to see who can lead here. And they, and they uh, kind of had them, uh, gave them this exercise. And so you have these different ministers, young guys trying to jockey around and say, well, I think I could lead here because I have these skills. And da, da, da. This guy just sat back. And what happened was, they, they couldn't come to a conclusion about who should lead. And so they said, well, we'll, we'll throw a dice. We'll flip a coin for it. So they had a number of guys flip coins against each other. And I've got to tell you, this minister friend, he never wins games of luck. You know, in a carnival or anything, never wins. Whenever there is like a throw of a dice, a flip of a coin, never wins us. Well, he won the first one. So he went on to the next heat. And then he won the second one. So there's a series of coins until at last, he was the only one left. He said, okay. If I'm being given authority, here's, here's what we need to do, start to lead. Well, he ended up past being propelled forward in his career. But when he was given his evaluation, they said to him, you know, we were going we to fail you. We didn't think you could do it until that one time when you were put in charge. And then we saw, wow, this guy could lead. So it was God there in his situation. He was at peace. God worked out his life. It's just this kind of a situation here. You have to have an underlying attitude that I am not responsible to make my life work out. And I'm so convinced of that, that I will, sometimes it might even lead you to, to actions that seem to contradict the goal, like carrying buckets of water up Mount Carmel to dump on a sacrifice that you want to see burned up, or camping here in this ridiculous place when you're being pursued by an enemy. That's number one for the life of faith. Okay, you've got to fight for your right to relax in God, number one. Number two, verse 19 and verse 22, they are called to walk forward even on their own shadow. 
out. Let me um, just take you along the beach here to this. This is looking across from Nueva, across the Gulf of Aqaba. And if you can see, you can kind of see in the haze there, if you're up close, the other side, um, which is the, the, the Arabian Gulf, the, the Arabian uh, Peninsula there. This is the water that, it seems, got split in two. But um, once this sea is parted, and the power of God is really shown, that's when the walk of faith begins. Because you can tell from our passage, verse 20 there, verse 21, verse 24, it's pretty clear. This happened at night. The crossing took place at night. So you need to forget all the movies that you've seen, the Ten Commandments and Charlton Heston, the wind blowing his hair, all the times you've seen this happen during the day. It didn't happen in the day. It happened at night. And what happens is, it's very clear, verse 19, the pillar of fire picks up from in front of them and moves behind them. Okay? So... The people are here. The pillar of fire goes behind us. It's the only source of light. It's pitch black. There's no lights around. It's pitch black in the middle of the night. pillar of fire is behind them. The only source of light is behind them. And they've got a wall of water on their left, a wall of water on their right. So what do they see? They're in front of the light. All they see is their shadows sticking out in front of them. And then God says, walk. And Moses has his arm out. It doesn't even seem like Moses is going first. It's just to the people. Walk. So as they look down, they have to walk into the sea. What do they see? Is their own shadows. So they have to tread upon their own shadows walking through the sea. See that? This was spooky, folks. This was really spooky. Because though they can maybe see in the distance sort of light shining that there's something open there for them. They can't see, really, the ground they're walking on. All they can tell is, this is dry ground. And this is the second feature of the life of faith, is you have to walk forward, even in the midst of the show of God's power, you have to walk forward on your own shadow, tread on your own shadow. So God acts powerfully for us, but we still have to trust Now, why do it this way? Why not cross in the daytime? Be a much nicer journey and not spooky like this. And by the way, I've never seen this represented the way it's written here. This is a challenge to all you visual artists out there. Never seen this and the spookiness of what it would really be like to do this done, uh, portrayed for us. Why does God do it this way? Because, friends, when there is risk involved, That's when false motives disappear. That's when you find out what you're really trusting in. So if you have that situation at work, you might be seeing the power of God work on your behalf, but still there's risk involved. You might need to have to still tell the truth in that work situation when actually it's it's putting your job on the line to do that. Maybe you have that situation in your family where you see your children are not acting well and you need to stay steady. You need to walk, even though you don't completely understand, you need to do right by them, by your children, even though you see them courting disaster. 
need to walk forward even on your own shadows at uh, own shadow at time. And that's what this young man, I don't know if I mentioned him before, in Stockton, in, in Brockton, Massachusetts, who had this, this existential crisis. And eventually, um, he found there was this preacher, D.L. Moody, who was preaching. He went and saw this preacher, sat down preaching, and he got this message about faith and what it required. And he said, I do not understand completely, but I'm going to trust and obey. And he came to a place of peace in doing that. I'm going to trust and obey. And actually, that became a great hymn because there was a hymn writer. He stood up and gave a testimony about this. And there was a hymn writer there, heard that expression, trust and obey, went home, wrote this beautiful hymn that people are still singing um, many, many years later about the life of faith. So you can't always tell what you're walking on, just that it's dry ground. But when you do this, friends, when you enter into this program that God has for you, when you have these situations and you respond with an attitude of being still, and when you're called forward in what's right to walk on that, what happens is God does something amazing to you by meeting you on the other side. So we have this beautiful picture here in the crossing. As they were walking from the west to the east, and here I have a picture over the, over the same uh, sea. What happened? They walked through the night, and as they left the light behind them and walked ahead, what did they meet? They met another light, the light of the dawn. That's exactly what is pictured for us. As they walked through the night toward the morning, they would see the sunrise coming up in front of them. God was recreating their lives. It was a, it was a, it was a recreation that happens inside of them as they walked forward. It's beautifully pictured, going from light to light, the light of a pillar in the night to the light of the morning. That's what they would experience. And so what God was doing them and bringing them through the, the sea, the Yam Suf, was recreating their lives so they could be brought into a place of peace. That is the way that he does it, the way he still does it. That recreation. In fact, Warren Austin Gage, a commentator, uh, he astutely notes that what's going on and what they are seeing is a, is a creation that is a paradigm of the creation in the beginning that God did. What happens first? Light out of darkness, that's day one. What happens next? The waters are divided, that's day two. What happens next? Dry land appears, that's day three. So what, what, and what's fascinating about this is that they, as they go through, Moses is going to write the account for them of the original creation. And it's kind of going to, for them, it's going to be like the prequel. You know, you go to a movie and you see it. It's like, okay, but then, then they put out the prequel and it explains what happens in the, in the, in the sequel. Well, that's what they experienced. When, when Moses wrote the account for them of Genesis chapter 1, they could read that and say, oh, yeah, I know God does this because we experienced that. When he recreated our lives, he does the same. This is how he creates. This is how he recreates 
in taking us through the sea. So God wants to recreate our lives as well, friends, bring, to bring us to a place of rest. This is how, how we come to a place of rest. And that's what happened with the Groenwalds. I was telling you about Werner Groenwald, just yesterday inducted into this monument, because he went over there with his family, had two children. And those of you who are concerned about your children, just think about this, went over there with two children, it was a family, to bring the gospel to Afghanistan. And what happened was he, they were successful, and those kids grew up to be teens. They were teens when the attackers came, broke in, and murdered them. Only the mother survived. But this man and his, and his two children perished. But they perished from a place of peace. You know, <clears throat> he, so, uh, just before he died, actually, in a month, a month before he died, he was talking to someone, and he said, you know, we only, have, we only die once. We might as well die for Christ. That's peace. That's peace with a man who's not only physically threatened himself, his, his whole family is threatened. That is a place of peace. Because his life was recreated as he responded in faith, as he walked in this walk of faith. So like Werner Groenwald or the young man after that sermon or that church planning minister, God was bringing out a new morning, a new life inside of them to really give them peace. As the book of Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord leads to life and whoever has it rests. So friends, as we turn to the table now, I want you to see this in your own life because if you bear the name of Christ, he is doing the same thing with you. He's recreating your life as you be still for his power, as you tread on your own shadow when he calls. He will bring you to a place of rest. Amen.